And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm pleased and honored to be sitting opposite a faculty colleague today for his monthly visit to the program, Dr. Art Sear. Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Clausen Center, author of After the Cold War, and uh, someone who has uh, uh, who writes columns and essays that are published uh, regularly in newspapers and journals across the country and, uh, and around the world as well. And uh, Professor Sear uh, is a regular presence uh, on this program as well as on uh, WUWM. And uh, it's always great to be able to uh, catch up with him and to uh, get his perspective and on uh, on various uh, stories and, and and issues that are confronting us. Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be here, especially on a sunny day. Yeah, nice day, and good to good to have you here. I'm. I wish uh, all of the issues we were talking about were a little sunnier in nature, but uh, uh, sad to say, most of them. Uh, Absolutely are not. I think one of the uh, places that we need to start today is uh, the really unsettling situation right now uh, in in the nation of Syria, which of course is uh, has been the site of of terrible conflict in uh, in recent years, and of course uh, President Trump's uh, apparently f- rather uh, abrupt decision to withdraw our troops from from Syria, of course. Uh, led to widespread uh, criticism, although certainly some people uh, ap- applauded the move. But uh, it has set in motion some other dramatic events and, and so on. And, it's, and more than anything, just seems to underscore the volatility of, of the situation. You wrote a column uh, not long ago about Syria in which you uh, tried to give us some historical context. And of course, most of the time when we talk about uh, the biggest stories of the day. We tend not to to look at the the long, long term history uh, as much as we should, uh, if we do even at all. So, uh, why don't we begin with whatever you think is important for us to know about kind of the historical context of Syria itself, Syria and Turkey, and uh, and our presence there. Well, um, the Assad family has controlled Syria with. Uh without exaggeration, an iron hand since about 1970. Uh, Bashar Assad's father was one of a large population of younger nationalist military officers, usually in the army, who uh, during the 50s especially overthrew uh, monarchies, traditional colonial regimes in various parts of the Middle East, including Egypt, where Gamal Nasser was a young army colonel when they overthrew King Farouk in the mid-1950s. So it was part of that trend. Um, Bashir Assad's father was uh, uh, extremely effective in a very violent and turbulent nationalist mov- movement, the Ba'athist Party, in establish- taking over, establishing control, and the family has been in charge ever since. Um, they're a very durable regime. They've been written off by various observers, including members of the Obama administration, um, to bring it down to more contemporary times. During the Cold War, they, like other nationalist uh, Arab regimes, became aligned with the Soviet Union, especially after the Suez crisis and fiasco of 1956. Um, And they're still closely allied with Russia, the Russian military, and Vladimir Putin as principal strategist, increasingly influential in the region, 
has been extremely important in maintaining stability in Syria. I can go on and on and on, as professors <laughs> do, but to me those, those are the highlights. There's obviously a lot of controversy connected with events and uh, changing U.S. policy and no policy over time. And in, in this case, especially because the stakes are so high, I, I urge you to have people on with uh, points of view that are different from mine, which are pretty conservative. Can you tell us anything about the Kurds? That's We hear so much about the Kurds and perhaps their new vulnerability in the wake of, of America's withdrawal from Syria. Well, uh, certainly the media, especially the U.S. media, uh, which tries to turn news into melodrama, in my opinion, uh, too much so these days, have turned the Kurds into victims of our of our casual and irresponsible pre president and um, various totalitarian regimes. In fact, they're an ethnic group that has no fixed national home, and they've been um, a source of anxiety for a variety of governments in the region um, because they go across national borders. They are viewed, rightly or wrongly, as generally a disruptive force in the region, and that is nothing new. I believe the Assad regime has uh, made a commitment to um, uh, a quasi-independent Kurdish area uh, in Syria, and the Turkish government, as a result, in my view, of Putin's rather skillful strategic diplomacy, has also grudgingly, they've not only agreed to a ceasefire, which seems to be working sort of. Uh, at Putin's behest, but they also have um, made noises about being more restrained and more, respect, more respectful of the Kurds. There is a nationalist um, dimension to the Kurdish popular movement movements that is quite violent, and the PKK is a shorthand reference to that very violent revolutionary arm of the Kurdish nationalists. Uh, viewed as a terrorist organization generally. Uh, a man by the name of Ocalan was captured by the Turks at the end of the 20th century, and the assumption was, true to their traditional practice, they would kill him. He has been in prison ever since, mm. um, even in the volatile Middle East. The death penalty has been in decline, and it's, it's a particularly important indicator of real change or lack of change in Turkey. And let me emphasize regarding Turkey and other countries in the region, look beyond the editorializing, look beyond the melodrama that's so big a part of our media today, including serious media, and uh, take a look at specific things that these governments and groups are doing. One of the uh, remarkable aspects in terms of the response to President uh, Trump's decision to withdraw our troops from this region of, of Syria was that the criticism for that came from all sides, not just from Democrats who criticize nearly everything he does and nearly everything he says, but, but also from, from key Republicans who have uh, otherwise been at, uh, almost across the board <laughs> staunch supporters of, of the president, even in, 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 in difficult circumstances. But this was something that really upset a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just explain why you think this move generated the, 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 the amount of concern that it did and kind of across the board? I don't think that's something that 
you know, the, the media is responsible for. I mean, that's well documented that the, the, the objections to that come from a wider swath than we have seen recently when it comes to President Trump. Our military is at least important and dominant factions of the U.S. military are anxious to remain present in the region. And reflecting that, the troops are not leaving the region. Um, they're moving out of Syria and into Iraq, and I dare say elsewhere in the region. We've also substantially expanded our on-the-ground presence in Saudi Arabia, a nation which is important to U.S. security, but toward which I believe we've been entirely too friendly, a very mm -hmm. ugly regime among a number in the region important because of the royal and important because of geography. But I worry a lot about the fact that rather willy-nilly, whether it's President Trump or others in Washington, we are um, uh, rather casual about putting our forces on the ground. I can't expand at length on that because I have pretty strong feelings about it. One important point is that the President's base is uh, not unhappy about the fact that he's reluctant to use force overseas. He was very reluctant to expand our presence in Afghanistan, for instance, at the very start of his administration, as was President Obama. But the pressures for these deployments are very great. Trump gets tremendous support from the serving U.S. military and from military veterans because uh, uh, he, in fact, is reluctant to deploy our troops overseas. On the surface, it's anomalous given his own very well-documented, very public avoidance of military service during the Vietnam War. Uh, rhetorically, he's very supportive and patriotic of the flag waiver, as we all know. Um, that's not what gets these people to vote for him. It's the fact that he is reluctant to send troops overseas. That's not much discussed in the media, but there's a big reason True. why he did extremely well with that population and continues to do so. Starting with President Clinton, uh, who uh, is a particularly mixed president in terms of his overall record and accomplishments and failures, we have drastically expanded the deployment of our troops overseas. Why are suicide rates high? Why are emotional problems high? Why are physical problems high, along with the physical lethal danger of being in hot areas? Our politicians have been entirely too casual about this, and I'm sorry to say it applies to both parties. Mm -hmm. And Trump has seized on that very strong current of, of sentiment. And like a lot of important matters in our politics and government today, it's not really discussed at all. Right. So thank you for asking. Right. I, I hope that's clear and coherent. As I say, I have rather strong feelings sure. on the subject. And a, another good reason why you should have other people on this program. Right. No, I appreciate that. But let me reiterate part of my question that I think I I'm still want to hear more from, which is, why did this move, why did President's dis President Trump's decision to withdraw our troops from Syria, why did that generate such criticism from people in his own party? People are worried that it will be destabilizing. Again, uh, I would commend to you, as I have before on this program, President Eisenhower's farewell address, warning about the military-industrial complex, hmm. uh, largely ignored at the time. Uh, early 1961, everybody was falling in love with the Kennedys, especially the new First Lady, and that included, for sure, the media. It got a, like a paragraph, a small one, in the <laughs> New York Times. Uh, it resonates more and more. I show it to my students, and I, it's like everything else, good and bad. It's available on YouTube.
take a look at Ike's farewell address, which resonates more and more and more even a half century later. And of course, yeah, go and, ahead. and the fact that it came from President Eisenhower of all people, that that makes its impact even even deeper. I mean, the perspective that from which he was speaking. As President Eisenhower uh, held back the military budget, was extremely restrained about intervening directly with uniformed military overseas. He was quite active in using unconventional uh, operators and operatives in unconventional operations. And in Eisenhower's time, unlike afterwards, there were secret operations that by and large stayed secret. He put a lid on the military budget at a time when he was, uh, when the military budget was over 50% of the entire federal budget, far more than today, despite mm. our wars. I assume you talk the way you do because he was quite rightly a celebrated military hero, but he also understood the military and the very ruthless nature and powerful nature of the military lobby. Right. And when he talks about such matters, people should listen. And, and Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad we agree. Uh, how would you characterize uh, at the moment, because I know you've talked about it before, our our relationship with Turkey and what makes them an important ally for us, if sometimes kind of a difficult ally? A uh, particularly difficult ally today. I think we should keep them in NATO or try to. Um, it is a regime that has a secular constitution. The long-term prime minister and now president, the autocratic uh, Erdogan, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, I think, is a reasonably correct pronunciation, uh, represents an Islamic party which is technically unconstitutional under, under the established and very durable uh, Atatürk constitution in Turkey. He has moved the government, uh, not the society, but the government, in less secular directions. And uh, he's also very, very critical of the U.S., I think for st our strategic interests, and, ge and geography doesn't change, those interests basically don't change, I think we should try to keep them in uh, the NATO alliance and work together with them. They have the largest military, mostly land army, in NATO except for us. I believe that's true. Uh, they s undeniably have a tremendous warrior tradition. Uh, the North, Cor North Koreans and Chinese during the Korean War would avoid the Turks who were faithful allies of ours during that war. During the first Gulf War, uh, a very uncontroversial war, and ignored for that reason, they uh, permitted the U.S. to base B-52 bombers in Turkey, and they did uh, most of the, they wreaked most of the havoc against the poorly deployed, very vulnerable uh, Iraqi land forces during that mercifully brief war. They've had senior command responsibilities. Uh, the last top civilian commander in Afghanistan, save one, was a Turkish diplomat. So again, under the surface, at the working level, we should continue to try to work with them. They're very, very hostile to terrorism, very effective at killing terrorists. They're, the Turks tend to be very good at killing mm -hmm. their opponents, historically and cur currently, and we should focus on that rather than the difficult personalities involved currently on both sides. Right. Uh, yesterday on uh, Fresh Air, uh, Terry Gross had a really uh, interesting conversation with uh, a, a leading journalist who has been covering uh, events in, uh, in, in, in the Middle East and in particular uh, has uh, 
been covering events in 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 Syria, Washington Post, Beirut bureau chief uh, Liz Sly, who uh, received a, an award last night uh, from uh, from the, a, the a, women's the women's journalism group. Right, very important organization. Terry Gross's last question to uh, to uh, Liz Sly in that interview, which uh, people can find on NPR.org, was whether or not she was worried about. Uh, some kind of accidental war being triggered in the region or, in a sense, an accidental expansion of, of, the, of the bloodshed that's already going on there. Uh, and, and she replied that, yes, she was very, very worried about that. It was interesting to be reminded of that as I read one of your recent columns this morning, which looks back at the Cuban Missile Crisis, which unfolded... Uh, right about now, 57 years ago. And you say that uh, one of the, uh, in a sense, un- one of the forgotten lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, what unfolded, what was avoided, is the fact that there was at that point a, a high danger of accidental war and that this is uh, something that we really don't spend enough time thinking about and guarding against. Yeah, well, certainly the professionals in government do, and overall, <coughs> CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, <coughs> still, I believe, the principal and relatively vo- visible uh, non-military intelligence arm of our government. Um, their record long-term, including during the Vietnam War, I think has been quite good. John McCone, who was not an agency professional but was a Republican big businessman, a manufacturing and shipping magnate from California, whom the Kennedy brothers put in place as they were seeking cover from the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion, aborted chaotic failed invasion of Cuba uh, during the very first week of President Kennedy's turbulent administration. John McCone was kind of the lone voice who kept arguing the Soviets are going to be putting missiles into Cuba. Uh, just briefly, for those who may not be as well informed as you are on these, these matters, it was a long time ago, the um, island of Cuba became a communist dictatorship clearly by 1960 and early 61. Uh, Fidel Castro, whose revolutionary movement had taken over quite dramatically, Uh, on New Year's Day 1959, became fully aligned with the Soviet bloc. The Soviets began a military buildup on Cuba that was relentless, and it also was seen, and in fact was, throughout the Cold War, a source of revolution and instability throughout the Americas. It became a number one hot issue in American politics. JFK used it successfully in uh, outflanking Richard Nixon, his opponent. He outflanked him on the conservative side in the 1960 Democratic election, and it just became public issue number one and a very partisan issue. Uh, the Kennedy people assumed that the Soviets would never put missiles into Cuba, and Khrushchev and company publicly and privately reinforced that point of view. Uh, in, po- in point of fact, the Russians lied. That's exactly what they did do, and barely in time, the Kennedy people, thanks to a significant degree to McCone's pressure, uh, were able to discover the missiles just in time. And to Kennedy's great credit, in this case, the more you learn about the situation and the more you learn about 
how he handled it. And the more you learn about just how close we were to nuclear war, the more uh, not only does it become ever more scary, <laughs> but he becomes quite, uh, quite impressive from my point of view. But I don't think it's just my point of view in the way he averted that crisis. He recovered quite dramatically all the ground he'd lost at uh, the disastrous Bay of Pigs and a disastrous summit meeting with Nikita Khrushchev shortly thereafter. And uh, he had lots of problems. Right. He it, had it, lots it, of problems, buddy. Yeah, he was a, th- that <laughs> was a... Many levels. Yeah, that was a checkered, uh, a checkered presidency. And, and yeah. I know from you know, many times when you've you've talked about the Kennedy presidency that, that uh, there, are, there are a lot of things that, uh, that he did wrong as president. Uh, and uh, well, we've s- talked about a lot of administrations. Sure, in fairness, but but anyway, he's no but, special target, right? But, no, uh, no, I mean, I'm I'm just putting in context what you're saying about him about the Cuban Missile Crisis that this is not coming from somebody who's a JFK uh, uh, flag waver. I mean, you you've been very frank about uh, some of your concerns and criticisms about the Kennedy administration, but this is a chapter in which. Uh, he pretty much did what he needed to do, and uh, and it's really scary to think about what might have happened uh, if this very sensitive and difficult situation had not been treated as well as it was. A very serious scholar and, and uh, presidential biographer, unfortunately now deceased, but uh, he had a long productive life, Herbert Parmet, P-A-R-M-E-T, who spent most of his career at the City University of New York. A very fine gentleman. I had the privilege of knowing him slightly, uh, as well as teacher and scholar. He did uh, two volumes on Kennedy, which are not celebrated, but are actually among the best biographies of that important politician and one of our presidents. Uh, uh, Parmet said he was wrote he was at his best when he was trapped, hmm. uh, when when you thought he was really cornered in a tumultuous uh, career and life including in World War II, including afterwards, he would, when the pressure was really high, given his unusual temperament and character, that's when he would really succeed and overcome difficulties. A child of great privilege, but also great liabilities and handicaps, especially in terms of his health, Um, but not only that. And that's important to keep in mind. There's um, an important scholar, Roberta Wolstetter, W-O-H-L-S-T-E-T-T-E-R, uh, she was the uh, very impressive person as well as scholar, the spouse of Albert Wolstetter. Back during the G.W. Bush administration, people would ask who were the neocons, who originated the neoconservatives who got us into Iraq. Well, Albert Wolstetter did that. Mm. Um, I had an opportunity to work for him in my youth. He had a uh, um, money machine company called Panheuristics. And I'm very glad that I turned down an opportunity to be one of them, Hmm. one of those contenders uh, quite young. Not long after that, I had a chance to go to work in Chicago at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, where Roberta was a director, John Riley, the longtime president of the council. had kept Albert at a distance, which is one reason I decided to take the unexpected job offer in Chicago. Uh, Roberta was on the board. She and that reinforced my sense that this is probably a good place to work, and it was. Um, traditional wife, mother, kept the family together, coped with Albert. Uh, she taught part-time at the University of Chicago. She did a book called Pearl Harbor Warning and Decision, and she followed it up with an essay in Foreign Affairs, I think, after the missile crisis, 
there are always signals. There were signals that the Japanese were about to attack Pearl Harbor, uh, which helped fuel conspiracy theories after mm. the fact, false conspiracy theories. <coughs> uh, there were signals that the Soviets were going to be putting missiles into Cuba. Uh, the U.S. had lots of agents on the ground in Cuba, many of them very good, and there was all kinds of information coming in about trailers and very vivid descriptions of missiles being secretly moved around. Um, but there's also noise. Hmm. There were indications the Japanese were going to drive further into Manchuria, that they were going to expand the uh, undeclared but intense shooting war with the Soviet Union uh, around Manchuria and Siberia. They were going to drive deeper into China proper. They're going to attack Southeast Asia and the Philippines, which they did. Differentiating the signals from the noise is a key test of intelligence. And w when you think about it, we've all had that experience at one level or other of our lives. And her book, uh, which came out in 1962 about Pearl Harbor before the missile crisis, and her article in Foreign Affairs a couple of years later are really good, good things to read about this. And they apply today to the Mideast, where the century mark of uh, the uh, unhappy aftermath, fortunate but unhappy aftermath of World War I, where um, the Congress of Victorian, we victorious Western and U.S. leaders, uh, led by President Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, except he wasn't really in charge ever. Uh, the Europeans outmaneuvered him. He had a tragic end to his administration and life. An early version of the UN failed. Um, World War One was a function of miscalculation. Basically, Germany was the aggressor, but it was a function of vast miscalculation by the men at the top, and that none of them anticipated the unprecedented horror of the first war. Likewise, in the Middle East, we've got lots of armed Americans on the ground. We've got Israelis on the ground and in the air. We've got Syrians, a very lethal military. We've got Russians. We've, we've got all kinds of armed groups. U.S. troops killed uh, approximately 100 Russians not long ago. They were mercenaries, not line troops, although in Russia that distinction is, is often blurry. No Americans were killed, thank God. If they had been, it, now that was a serious incident. How much attention did it get in our news media? Almost none, almost none. It's a real powder keg in the Middle East, and I am going on at length this time. Uh, because it is so important, the danger of accidental war. So thank you very much for uh, underscoring the award, very well-deserved award by this outstanding woman journalist. Let me, uh, let me ask one final question. The end of your column in which you talk about our troops' withdrawal from Syria, you have couched uh, President Trump's decision in relatively positive terms, but your column ends by saying essentially that President Trump, uh, in this move, I think you mean in this move, has abandoned uh, a long legacy of leadership in the Middle East. I think we should be less present on the ground in the Middle East. I don't. Uh, I think that's what we should do. As so often with this president, it was a haphazard, unpredicted, unpredictable decision. Uh, and apparently made without consult consultation with yeah, the Pentagon. Yeah, so often does. Yeah, yeah. and I, um, I, I prefer to focus on the president's policy decisions, steps and missteps, rather than rhetoric and personality, given the office he occupies. But he's overall been a president who 
has avoided um, disaster in foreign policy or politically. His base of support holds up remarkably well. Um, but we are weaker and weaker in the world. At the end of the first Gulf War and during the rest of the George H.W. Bush administration, we were dominant in the Middle East. Bush and Secretary of State Baker took full advantage of the fact that the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that we had a remarkable opportunity. And they not only won the Gulf War brilliantly with our allies, and it was a comprehensive coalition, including Syria, by the way, and the Israelis fortunately uh, maintained some self-restraint that was vital that effort. They also put in place a comprehensive peace effort that left us the dominant power. It's all been frittered away, hmm. frittered away. And I think our, our president gave Jerusalem to the Israelis. Big deal. Netanyahu pays no attention to Trump. Privately, I'm sure they sneer at him. Uh, Russia, and and, uh, Russia and Putin and Netanyahu uh, now have a very strong working relationship. Unbelievable how our irresponsibility has frittered away our position in the region. So I I think I'm understanding more clearly. So it's not that you want more American troops on the ground in terms of our presence. Yeah, in terms of our presence in the Middle East, but you want us to exert leadership and influence there in other ways. And right now we're not doing that very well at all, I think is what you're saying. Uh, yes, uh, since I'm dropping a lot of names this morning, John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago and Robert Pape, P-A-P-E, at the University of Chicago, among others. Stephen Wald at Harvard is another one. They developed the case that a big part of the problem in the Middle East and in the Islamic world generally is us. Uh, radical movements are fueled by U.S. forces on the ground. Well, speaking of special operations, and I refer to Eisenhower in that context, there is certainly a role for that kind of activity. But a large presence on the ground, among the three of them, they make a very good case for the proposition that that helps fuel Islamic radicalism and that brand of violent terrorism. And I happen to agree with that. Mm -hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Art Seer, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, paying his monthly visit to uh, the program today. And um, we should spend at least a minute or two talking about uh, President Trump and the, uh, what he is embroiled in uh, at the moment in terms of uh, his connection with uh, the government of Ukraine and the impeachment inquiry that is, is uh, currently um, underway. Um, I wonder if you, uh, I mean, I think one of the most intriguing things about the way President Trump is trying to weather this is the fact that the story sort of pivots between this didn't happen, this is all made up, this is a witch hunt, and uh, a, a different defense, which is what I did uh, wasn't wrong, uh, this connection, this asking for this investigation uh, in, mm -hmm. in Ukraine and so on. Uh, I, want, I wonder what you make of this current situation. Well, you're very insightful to allude to criminal behavior We'll see what happens. I, I believe the Democrats in the House will vote to impeach the president uh, because they want to. I, I, you don't need me to point out what a partisan and poisonous time this is currently in Washington. Always a difficult place in the best of times, but it's really unpleasant right now, and there are just all kinds of people and interests, not all of them Democratic, 
who uh, are very, very hostile to the president and despise him. Let's look and see what, it's a political process that's underway. I think what's most important is um, uh, any evidence of criminal behavior. The uh, uh, Senate uh, is very unlikely with its Republican majority to convict him. Um, I think McConnell probably will go through, go through with a trial of some kind because he said he would and because he calculates, and he calculates constantly and very successfully in his career. I'm not uh, someone who's personally quite drawn to him, but he's a, he's a very powerful individual in Washington. So the, the president's unlikely to be convicted unless there's evidence of criminal, be criminal behavior and the Republicans start to move. Um, Andrew Johnson's a very tragic figure in many ways. Lincoln's successor as president after the president was assassinated and a target of a really poisonous time in Washington. Um, it was the lack of the lack of representation and support by his Democratic Party that was a big factor in his impeachment, impeachment and near conviction. Uh, since Watergate, what brought Nixon down was the fact that he lost Republican support uh, during that later impeachment uh, crisis, the first since the Civil War. It shows you how much we recoiled from impeaching a president thanks to the Andrew Johnson experience, and that, I think, is the right attitude for us to have, uh, not the current one. The Watergate scandal opened up impeachment to something much, much more available to ambitious politicians, and the Clinton impeachment and this one reflect that. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee voted articles of impeachment against President Nixon, not only all the Democrats, but about a third of the Republicans moved in that direction. And uh, I think it's a political process. We should look for evidence of criminal wrongdoing. In terms of the political process, look for evidence that Republicans are abandoning the president in the House. Right. So far, they're not. So no. that's the best I can do. The only other point is that uh, Trump has never been indicted. He's involved in endless lawsuits. But uh, there's a very good book called Boardwalk Jungle, not to be confused with Boardwalk Empire, I think, on Netflix. Ovid Damaris, a serious um, student of organized crime, did this book about the huge federal sting that brought down all kinds of New Jersey politicians and others, real estate developers, gamblers, all kinds of people in the 1980s. The Abscam sting, half a dozen congressmen, and one senator, Harrison Williams, went to prison as a result of this. And it's, it's, there's, a, there's a sort of accurate Hollywood film called American Hustle that documents it reasonably accurately. A much younger Donald Trump was on the scene shooting off his mouth constantly in the media here and there and everywhere, blowing a lot of his father's fortune. Uh, he was never caught on wire. He was never indicted. He was never, he was never charged. They couldn't touch him. He has a survival instinct that uh, his many, many critics tend to underestimate, so we'll have to see. But keep that in mind, especially given his self-destructive personality. He is uh, quite a remarkable survivor. Right. And he did reach the White House. Incredible. Uh, I do remember, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm old enough to remember the Nixon uh, impeachment hearings, and I remember even as a 13 and 14-year-old, it made an impact on me that Republicans like William Cohen were will willing to vote for uh, articles of impeachment. Uh, I mean, that, that was very striking. 
On the other hand, because we live in these extremely polarized times, uh, the fact that that uh, very few Republicans are, are willing, at least publicly, to, to do that in and of itself, uh, I'm not sure that makes a case to not pursue impeachment. I mean, because you don't have people from both parties coming forward, it's, it feels like a time in our history when it's exceedingly difficult for a politician to do that, that is to cross party lines, uh, even if they harbor grave misgivings about uh, about what, in, in this case, the president has, has done. Uh, you're assuming he's guilty. You're no. assuming he should be impeached. No, I'm, I'm not saying that oh, at good. all. Glad to hear that I'm, stated explicitly so you're not assuming anything. What I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> the way you framed this made it sound like because Republicans are not coming forward, that makes this a very, in a sense, partisan effort to, to get the president. Because Republicans are not coming forward, he right. won't be convicted in the Senate. During Watergate, the Democrats had majorities in both houses. Barry Goldwater, who by then was a kind of senior statesman in the Republican Party and a, a man who paved the way in many ways for Ronald Reagan, went to the president and said, you have to go. You can't, you can't survive this. Nixon taped himself, as every, almost everyone must know. Nixon taped himself. Those tapes were subpoenaed and made public, and you could hear his voice um, of, uh, uh, in, in stating, encouraging obstruction of justice. It was right approving, there. Approving of obstruction of justice. So it was an unusual set of circumstances, wasn't it? Right. But Thank I'm also you. saying— I, re- I rest my case. Thank right. you. I'm, I'm, also, I'm just saying it was a different <laughs> world in which the crossing of the political aisle was much more— and even when President Clinton was impeached, even, even in those highly charged partisan times, it was more likely than it is today for somebody to take that political step to— I mean, what, what I have now, read— The Clinton impeachment was quite partisan. Maybe five Democrats, almost all from the South, uh, voted for impeaching— President Clinton in the House. It was a thoroughly partisan exercise, as McConnell has admitted, and said uh, in his distinctive voice, "Well, that was a mistake." Right. There were some consequences of that. Was, was the I guess the point that I'm making is Please. that, that um, I have read plenty of accounts that there are Republican members of the House who have grave misgivings about President Trump's conduct when it comes to Ukraine. And pursuing a political investigation, of, uh, a, a, an investigation of a political rival, but th- oh, th- I, but, I certainly agree. I think but those it's are, terrible. Behavior. But I mean, those are no. those are those are private. Don't mis- imply that I'm somehow no, approving. No, I'm this. not. I'm not saying that at all. What oh, I'm saying, thank you. what I'm saying is, these Republicans who harbor these serious misgivings, who probably regard this as an abuse of power, uh, are in no position to step forward. And declare that publicly, and to vote uh, in that direction, given the times that we're in right now. That—that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think what I said before was trying to say was the degree to which Republicans will come out against him, uh, an indicator in the truly tragic impeachment of Andrew John Johnson at the end of it. The whole country was soaked in blood, literally. I—I uh, I mean, quite literally, especially the South. One out of every four military-age males perished in that war. Um, and the politically tragic, but not nearly so consequential, impeachment of Nixon, it's when your own party members turn against you, that that's quite telling. 
Right, exactly. And and whether they're so willing to do so that. and yeah. whether and whether they're willing to do so publicly is is I mean it's 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 one thing whether you approve or disapprove of what the president has done, but it's another thing to be able to stand up and in a sense express those misgivings in, in in a vote. I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, you're talking about let's look for criminal conduct uh, and I'm not sure that abuse of power is anything you find in the criminal code but uh but you know that is certainly the the opinion of some that that president trump has abused his power when in in terms of his dealings with ukraine but i'm not sure you can point to a law that has been broken in that case which makes which makes the case probably more difficult to make in some ways the uh, radical Republicans who dominated Congress after Lincoln's death, he was able to keep them at bay, passed something called the Tenure of Office Act. Mm. Uh, that was challenged repeatedly and finally um, uh, finally abandoned. Congress uh, uh, voted out the law in the, in the 1880s. The Tenure of Office Act meant that Congress had to be involved in firing any cabinet officer. Uh, wow. And Johnson... Andrew Johnson had gotten rid of um, Edwin Stanton, a very controversial, very dictatorial, very effective um, Secretary of War, right. close ally of Lincoln's, yeah. even though they started out as lawyers who were adversaries. <laughs> In those days, very disciplined people came up with a law that they could use, and you're quite right to emphasize the legal dimension. Thank <laughs> you for that, too. <laughs> Well, it's going to be interesting it was to see because, how it plays out. Uh, yeah, excuse me. Johnson had fired Stanton, and Congress wasn't consulted. consulted and uh, it, it really was a human tragedy. John F. Kennedy, in his very uh, interesting book, Profiles and Courage, which he wrote with Ted Sorensen, yeah. and which got the Pulitzer Prize, rightly or wrongly, in the late 50s, uh, he mentions particular senators who demonstrated great courage. And he, I brought a copy with me because I thought you'd be asking about this. <laughs> uh, Edmund Ross of Kansas, a uh, decorated combat hero, not just veteran of the Civil War in the Union Army, was commissioned in the field for valor. Uh, he was the senator from Kansas who saved, in effect saved Johnson, Republican who saved him from conviction mm. during the Senate trial. And, of course, he was done for in Kansas in the Republican Party. He moved out to New Mexico and had a very successful career there. He started out in the media as a newspaper reporter and then editor and then publisher. Quite a remarkable man. I'm and it's uh, the kind of example that you're alluding to here on your very good remarks. Thank yeah. you. Well, we'll see how it all plays out, of course. Is, uh, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing to, to, to see play out and this whole matter of checks and balances and what is it supposed to be. Uh, of course, w one point I think is worth mentioning is that Speaker of the House Pelosi was far more reluctant to pursue impeachment inquiry than a lot of her fellow Democrats who were urging her on before this whole Ukraine story broke. She was, uh, I think to her credit, was Trying to show some restraint and uh, mm -hmm. and and not uh, not jump at every every possibility. There were certainly plenty of Democrats who wanted to see impeachment seriously pursued long before Speaker Pelosi finally said yes. No, yeah, well, she's obviously an astute politician. She's one of the longest-serving speakers of the House in history. Um, she's about to surpass, if she hasn't already, Sam Rayburn's remarkable record. 
from the 1930s into the 1960s. Let's end on something more positive, Thank and uh, even though it's far from home. Um, you wrote a column that I found absolutely fascinating in which you wrote about the nation <laughs> of Vietnam and the fact that Vietnam has risen in prominence as an economic power uh, in recent years in a way that I don't think a, a lot of people foresaw. And, and it's also something uh, that we don't see very much at all about uh, in, in, in the mainstream media. Uh, tell us, uh, I'm briefly, I'm afraid, about the remarkable uh, resurgence of Vietnam in recent years and, and to what we attribute that. Well, actually, uh, we can thank uh, people we've been talking about, President Trump and his counterpart, President Xi, in China, thanks mm. to the trade war between the two nations. <laughs> uh, other low-cost, highly efficient and productive sources of um, finished goods and lots of other things in the world are becoming more attractive. Vietnam has, for many, many years, it took a long time for them to turn the corner but they have been seeking foreign investment, and I think U.S. News and World Report is what I referred to in the column. Uh, Bloomberg is another good source, in my view. They uh, are, are skyrocketing in terms of being an attractive home for foreign investment. Like China, they are a communist dictatorship. You do have to be careful. I did go to Hanoi in 1994, a, per a personal visit, basically, but I was there doing business for the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. We had a very successful program on East Asia and had raised vital, fair amount of vital money for us from, from new sources. <coughs> Clinton had just lifted the embargo. Our first ambassador, Pete Peterson, a, a POW of that, uh, that war, had not yet been appointed. I saw very senior people in uh, the foreign ministry, the trade ministry, not because I'm so great, they were desperate to meet Americans because even then they were looking, the revolution was over, the nation was unified, they were looking to uh, climb out of their, in those days, desperate economic circumstances. Hmm. No problems with anti-Americanism. Uh, it was quite inspiring and healthy for me, which is what I had hoped. And it was an early indicator of uh, a reminder of what a beautiful country it is, how different the North is from the South. And um, uh, the generous nature of uh, people generally. But I was very popular because of the U.S. dollar. They referred to the Russians who just left as Americans without money <laughs> for something like $200 for a week. I got a car driver. The interpreter was the, the uh, driver's sister. Uh, I got a car driver guy. The, uh, she had worked for the Russians, and she was most anxious to learn American uh, English of the American variety. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder, wonderful trip. Yeah. Wonderful trip. What a great story. And uh, a great story of Vietnam. I'm uh, glad that yeah, that trade war is doing some good for somebody. And, yeah, keep uh, paying attention yeah. to yeah. Vietnam. There will be bad news as well as good news. But remarkably, they're more skillful than the heavy-handed Chinese uh, in dealing with Hong Kong. Right. I yeah. know that's another topic you wanted to get to. But right. We'll have talk to too much. That's okay. We'll, we, uh, we, we, we dug into some juicy things, and we will talk about Hong Kong and Brexit and other matters uh, when you visit us in the month of November. In the meantime, for today's conversation, uh, I thank you most sincerely. Uh, Dr. Art Searclawson, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy at Carthage College. It's always great to speak with you. Well, thank you so much, Greg.